Welcome to the We Shape Podcast. I'm Katie. I'm here with our co-hosts, Tyler and Nina. Hey, guys. Hey, everybody. I have been waiting for this podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to lie. This I'm very excited about our guest today. Uh, we originally had her scheduled, and then we got norovirus. Oh, that was a bummer. <laughs> and so she was so patient and graceful with us and has rescheduled, and we're, the day is finally here. Yes. So um, I would love for Nina to do a formal introduction. Yes. Nina discovered this guest, <laughs> and I am just so grateful and so excited. So we're just going to jump right in. We have some time constraints today, which is totally fine, So, but I want to make sure we can maximize this conversation. Hi, everybody. Today we have with us Dr. Hortensia Jimenez, who's from Huichol Entrust. She was born in the Sierra Madre in the state of Nayarit, Mexico, and immigrated to the United States. She's a first-generation college graduate, earning a BA, MA, and PhD in sociology. Dr. Jimenez is a sociology professor, speaker, author, podcaster, health coach, and mother. She is currently working on a co-edited undergraduate textbook on Latinx studies with Sage Publishing, a leading press in the social sciences. Dr. Jimenez's research, research's writing um, has appeared in academic publications and has numerous awards and recognitions for her work in the Latinx community. She was featured for her undieting work in Bellatina News, a leading Latina digital platform, as well as Canvas Rebel. Dr. Jimenez has been interviewed by First Gen American, Latinos en Vivo, Radio Bilingue, and has been on numerous podcasts. Dr. Jimenez's work centers on dismantling diet culture from a social and racial justice framework and helping Latinxes heal their relationship with food mm -hmm. and tapping into their ancestral wisdom and integrating an intuitive eating framework. You can follow her on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Hortensia Jimenez and listen to her podcast, Dismantling Diet Culture, Fuck Being Calladita. <laughs> and with that, we would love to welcome you. We're so happy you're here. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you for, uh, for inviting me and being willing to have an honest and raw and vulnerable conversation, I think, for both of, for all of us. Yeah, we are so excited you're here. And I think the primary reason is, I mean, I knew this was going to be a heavier podcast. Some yes. of these topics are really heavy, but they're necessary. Absolutely. And um, at We Shape, our entire intention is to take people off of the path of dieting and weight loss and this idea around external validation that the media and our culture really want us to follow. And I, we talk a lot about the concept around the toxic fitness industry, how we used to participate in that. Mm -hmm. we, we've worked through our own shame and lessons around those years of our life and have really learned and can, and can pave a new path. But um, I try to remind people that the fitness industry and what they sell us does not exist without the cultural values that we collectively have as a community. Mm -hmm. So that is, in, in my opinion, and maybe you can help me, mm -hmm. is the root yes. of, of some of the, the, the ways that the fitness industry operates. And so we've talked a lot about this concept that those values are rooted in sexism, racism, and capitalism. Mm -hmm. I'd love to spend some time, we've talked a little bit about the capitalistic part, so I'd love to spend some time diving in your expertise and getting, you know, all of us, including Tyler and Nina and I, educated mm -hmm. on the racist and uh, sexist part yes. uh, of these values. So I don't know where you want to start, but yes. that's where I'm really hoping we can go today. Yes, absolutely. First and foremost, I want to begin by acknowledging that I I live in Monterey County, home to the SLN and Cosanoan uh, Nation. I am of Huichol ancestry, and I bring in this space, all my multiple identities and intersecting identities, and that's how I want to start off, and I think that's an important lens to have in all the conversations 
on 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 dieting and anything that has to do with social and racial justice issues. So having said that, um, the intersections of uh, diet culture, which is connected to the fitness industry, is these intersections. We cannot talk about uh, dismantling diet culture or undieting if we don't acknowledge, like you said, this collective ideas or values that are rooted in, in oppressive ideologies that mm. at the foundation is the elephant in the room that we never want to acknowledge or talk about, which is white supremacy. Ah! And as a woman of color, even saying that in this space and any space is always putting myself vulnerable and saying it right so if we acknowledge first and foremost that all of us in this space agree that white supremacy is is the root that informs everything you know even the foundation of this country right so looking at undieting looking at the fitness industry and diet culture the intersections of anti-fatness is rooted in anti-blackness is mm. rooted in patriarchy so we cannot discuss just one element without looking at all those intersections so if you want we can begin I would love to and I just want to say I think sometimes these topics feel um, intense because it's shameful Mm -hmm. for white people to sit in the concept Mm -hmm. of the white of of, of white supremacy being the root Mm -hmm. and I just want to encourage people Mm -hmm. that if you identify as a male or as as Caucasian or white Mm -hmm. It's okay to just face that. Mm -hmm. And we had to face our own stuff around Mm -hmm. the capitalistic nature of our our previous business models and the toxic culture we were participating in. But if we can't allow Mm -hmm. the shame and the emotions to just be what they are, we're not going to make progress. And just, you know, speaking from the perspective of being the white male on the stage here, I think it's really important that we try to just hear the experience of others rather than take that as judgment of of who we are exactly. and i think it's really important because i think that that's the trigger that i was kind of taught is <gasps> is judging who i am i didn't do anything wrong i would, you know i just i was brought up this way and so if we can just remove that and just say how do we listen mm-hmm. how do we hear how do we create empathy and, and vulnerability i think that's a really good place and to start. my i think the end goal would be and correct me if i'm wrong would be to actually take that shame and turn it into a way that we can use that mm-hmm. power to help other people yes. and to and to bring awareness to these topics and not to sit and sweat. It's like shame gets us stuck. Mm-hmm. And if we can just acknowledge and accept it and then use that power to help the collective whole, I think that's where change can really happen. Yes, and this is a great pivot, right, is that change begins with us at the individual level, right? So being a sociologist and looking at systems of oppression, so that's another area that I do want to talk about as well, but change begins with us at the individual level, and I can't help to think how we've been two big major institutions that have shaped our racial lens and how we see the world and how we see bodies and people is the family. Family as an institution plays a big role, so Speaking from personal experience, I grew up in Watsonville, which is only 25 minutes from Santa Cruz, 30 30 minutes, and the demographics are vastly different. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a culture shock every time I would come to Santa Cruz as a child, (laughs) you know. I grew up in a predominantly Latinx community, a farm worker community, so discussions around race weren't very explicit. I knew... 
I knew how what my positionality was in society based on those conversations, based on how I was treated. So my family didn't explicitly talk about race. It's how what we experience and in those spaces and then education systems. So what I'm saying here is that our families play a big role in, in our racial awakening uh, some our racial socialization, you know, black families, other families don't have a choice but to talk about race. You know, like I do that to my kids now. Like Miko, I have a six foot two brown boy. He's tall, and I've had to have these conversations of like, you may be perceived as a threat because of your body. Mm. Those those are hard conversations, you know. So, parents of color have oftentimes have to have these conversations we can't protect and shield our kids from not talking about race and maybe that's different if you're in grew up in a predominantly white space white family which is the norm which is the the dominant in our society so you don't have to engage in these conversations so i think we need to acknowledge that the hard work begins at home right Mm -hmm. and if you weren't talked about this growing up it's not it's not too late right so having these having the courage to have these conversations and then the second institution is the family family i mean the second institution is education the education system also amidst like very hard conversations about race we learned the superficial cesar chavez rosa parks martin luther king you know gandhi (laughs) the main figures but other than that, you know, the curriculum doesn't. Our students, as a professor, when they come to my courses and we're, we're talking about sociology and oppression, their students are like, <gasps> and I'm asking them, what do you think creating these safe spaces? And they're not ready. They don't feel mm. comfortable. So, you know, the education system and the family, those two reinforce and make it difficult for our, even our students and they become adults to engage in these conversations. So I think it's never too late. And that begins with us and it begins being vulnerable right and allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and compassionate at the same time right i think that's important and people of color minoritized communities we haven't had that privilege of being comfortable in these conversations Mm. so even i had this um, honest conversation with nina when she reached out and i said nina you know who i am like this is the work that i do i'm being very honest because i've had other white folks reach out and halfway through an interview, they realize, oh, this is not what we want. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm, I'm, I'm the vulnerable there, mm. you know. Yeah. And so I, I don't know if we're off on a tangent. <laughs> I think no. I did a little. I, I have a couple questions. Just uh, maybe sharing some stories from your youth that that can help people relate to the experiences you had that they don't have to experience. Yes, and I, you know, I can only speak from my experience as a woman of color as a as uh, all these different labels that I use to identify myself as Mexicanas and immigrant, as indigenous, as Latina and Latinx. <laughs> it's a whole other conversation. But growing up, I didn't have these conversations. I was ill-equipped when I got to the university. When I went mm-hmm. to San Jose State University, a very diverse uh, institution, I didn't have the skills. I had the knowledge and the experience. I didn't have the academic language to articulate my experiences. Mm. I don't want to wait for my students. I don't want my kids to wait until they get until they're 18 or 19 to have these conversations, to have the language to articulate their lived experience because you know most of our lives, our experiences are gaslighted as unreal that that didn't happen. And so because of those experiences, I make sure as a passionate professor that I am in my courses to really put this front and center and always have had these conversations so with my kids growing up they're they're quite aware of of race of gender fluidity of of all the isms because 
they're getting what I didn't get. And now they're experts. Now they're experts. They say, I know mama. I know. <laughs> We're watching a movie and they're like, I know mama. That's the way of shutting me down. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, I only think that I'm, I'm doing a good job as, as a mother and, you know, as, as a professor having these conversations with all my students. And I do want to say that it has been difficult for both students of color, uh, Latinx students, when they're like, what do you mean about race? Talking about race or racism, this doesn't exist. And, you know, getting that resistance both from students of color and also uh, from white students because they didn't have these conversations growing up and then they have a Latina professor, right? Then they have a woman of color telling about white privilege and telling about things that no one else has told them. So there's so much resistance, so many layers. Um, That's the shame. It is my responsibility. The shame and the guilt and the white fragility that uh, doesn't allow white folks to engage in these conversations. And I think it's so important because we're, we, people of color, always have to talk about this. So do you feel like one of the important things, I and mean, there's many important things that I've heard you say, like around educational systems, and um, but, you know, Tyler and I have talked about this a lot, uh, around just, like, being able to use the privilege that we have to create allies, right? And so, you know, Tyler and I, for instance, have had conversations with other people where I've brought up racial injustice issues, and I, quite frankly, was looked at like a bitch. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I need your white male power to become an ally because had you been in that conversation with Mm -hmm. me, you would have been looked at as a thought leader. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. because I'm a woman Mm -hmm. advocating for this, instantly I'm shut down by the white male, yes, right? And it, yes. and that's what's hard is like, mm-hmm. I wanna figure out a way that we mm-hmm. can bring allies into this so that yes. real change can happen. And I don't have the answer, yes. but yes. I just- We're doing yeah, it right here. Yeah, okay, we're that's doing, good to know. We're doing, you're doing the work right here. Uh, I, you know, I did mention understanding like uh, systems of oppression and marginalization, and I want to kind of center on that and as a way of what it means to be a white ally in in all these, yes. you know, spaces of racial justice. First and foremost is acknowledging our dominant identities or privileged identities. All of us in this space have privilege, you know, different levels of privilege. So uh, I think. Change begins there, and ally. We cannot have allyship or conspiracy. Is it what, what's the concept? Conspiracy. Consp- I can't pronounce it. You're, it's moving beyond an allyship. Conspirator. Like co-conspirator. Yeah, co-conspirator. Like when you're okay. Yeah, co-conspirator. Co-conspiring. So it sounds co- like you're up to like a bad, like a no, crime yeah, or something. Yeah, uh, it, we can edit that if you want. <laughs> I don't know. It's perfect. But we can't move into allyship into this action by first recognizing like who in this space is straight, you know, who who in this space is white. So dominant identities and privileged identities based on our society. So thinking as a sociologist is white. It is, remember all this, it's a social construct, right? But whiteness, uh, heteronormativity, uh, social class, if you're upper social class, if you're able body, if you are in a smaller, thin body, if you speak English, if you're a citizen, y'all, like all these are privileges, right? Some we earn them and some we inherit, the, you know, when we're born, we're part of that social group. Oops. And then our marginalized identities, even within the dominant groups, even right. within whiteness, even being a, as a, a white woman, 
you have less privilege than a white male, right? So that you see those intersections. I mean, and if you're queer, and if what if you're a fat woman, right? And you're in a bigger body. So you have marginalized identities. However, you're still part of the dominant group mm -hmm. in our society. So what mm -hmm. does that mean then for a, a woman of color who might also speak English, who may be straight or whatnot? But she's racialized. Can I just can and I she just has experienced systematic back. discrimination in this country. Mm -hmm. Can I just repeat what, back what you said, and you can tell me if I I got this or not, just because I want to make sure that I clarify for myself and, mm -hmm. and the listeners as well. I think that this conversation can't be had unless we're willing to say mm -hmm. there are a lot of different things that you can have privilege or injustice and not privilege in. And where you are at in your life and where you were born and, and how you've acted in your life is going to put you in some spectrum of these things. And yes. race is one of them. Your, your, your um, societal standing probably mm -hmm. due to how much money you make or the environment you live in, um, your, um, your sexual identity, how you look, um, uh, um, uh, your gender, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. It all kind of plays a role in this. Absolutely. That is the hard work. The hard work begins with each individual on unlearning, yeah. right? It's how privilege operates is you don't have to think about those privileges. Right. And I and recognize my own, right? So then how they operate and how they can lead to inequality. And you're trying to help, but you're causing harm because you're not having done the work. And like we've talked about, Tyler and I talk about this stuff a lot. And I, 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 you, I try to like use this analogy so that we can become allies, right? And, and I don't know if it ever resonates with you, but it's this, ident this idea that like you're a wealthy white man, right? And I'm a wealthy, able-bodied, thin white woman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I, feel, I feel the gap between us dramatically. Uh, because I identify as female, but I only have one factor, right? And to feel that gap is really intense for me. Yeah. And I try to use the analogy of like, I'm not trying to take the white male down. I'm trying to explain that I'm actually second in line to mm -hmm, you, mm -hmm. and I feel the gap. So what does that gap feel like for other people with more than one factor like that? Mm -hmm. What if I was gay? What so, if I was black? What so if I was poor? Let me ask a question. I'm really curious about your answer to this. Those are called in, the, are intersecting identities, right? How do you help people understand the gap mm -hmm. when there's not much of a gap for them? Mm -hmm. That's because that's how privilege operates. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I heard you say something powerful there. You said before uh, Katie talked, you said um, you don't have to think about privilege because yes. you're privileged. Yes. And so then you have no awareness of what it feels like to be unprivileged. So yeah. how do you... How do you build that awareness? I'm going to take it a step further because I feel like when I have these conversations, <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like when I have these conversations, um, I have access to a lot of wealthy white men in this mm -hmm. industry. And um, I, I get triggered a lot and mm -hmm. I'm trying to work out how I can create mm -hmm. allyship. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the things that comes up a lot when I, I, I do get brave a lot and bring these things up yeah, and I, I tend to make people very uncomfortable and I'm just don't care anymore. Um, <laughs> but... Um, how do you, what do you do mm -hmm. when you bring this up with someone and they go, well, I was poor as a child. And mm -hmm. so like, I know what that feels like. Mm -hmm. And you're like, but, but, but you're, but, oh man, like, I don't, I feel like I need help in, yes. in replying to like, when they do this comparative suffering game yes. or I was abused as a child or I was this. And I'm like, Ooh, I don't, yes. I, you're moving down a different path. I don't want to do comparative suffering. I want exactly. you to. Part of this is difficult, right? So there's things that I can do as a woman of color in certain spaces, and then the responsibility that white folks have with other white folks, right, <laughs> to to help them unlearn uh, a lot of these messages and, and recognize their privilege. 
it's it's I guess centering and saying that privilege doesn't necess- doesn't mean that you didn't have a rough life. You know, it is being compassionate. Say yes, I get it. I understand that you you're in this because of your hard work, everything that you did, but. But you also need to understand that being privileged doesn't mean that you didn't have a rough life, that you haven't been discriminated or you haven't been mistreated. I, what becomes very difficult is when folks aren't willing to engage in these mm-hmm. conversations, to have these open conversations, and you can only do so much as well. So yeah. it's also like you need to take care of yourself and your well-being. It's, it's you hard know what because I'm, I'm like, like yeah. I also feel like it's part of my job because yes. I'm like, okay, so we've oppressed all these people and then we're mm-hmm. relying on them to educate us. Yes, like Nina and I have talked about this a lot. Yes. I'm like, it just makes me crazy. So yes. I feel like part of part of what I want to do is contribute to the solution. Yes. And since I'm second in line, yes. I, it, I feel like it is my job to, to continue, create allyship yes. with, with white men. Yes. I don't, this is not about me taking white men down. Mm-hmm. I think that people mm-hmm. instantly assume that that's my intention. And so I'm just, is yeah, like how do we have these collaborative conversations if people are just not available for them? You know, and it's on, um, move on to someone who is exactly. available. Yes. <laughs> and acknowledging that perhaps that they're not ready to have these yeah. conversations. That's upsetting I, for I me. Also yes. just, I also just, you know, I've, I've watched you have a lot of these conversations. And what I try to pay attention to is where somebody's at when they're listening to you. Are they throwing up their armor and their shields and stuff like that? And wh- what's happening there? And what I think is really valuable for me already in this conversation is recognizing that you're talking about a conversation and maybe it's predicated on um, racial injustice. And they're like, oh, but I came from a poor family and I was abused and all this stuff like that. And so what they're saying is like, I had economic injustice, but you're like, no, I'm talking about racial injustice. It's not the same thing. And it's not the same thing. And so I think it's really important that in those conversations, we bring it back to there are, you know, social status. There is racial injustice. There is sexual orientation injustice, et cetera. Yes. uh, Actually, to just uh, elaborate on that, when we think about systems of oppression, and if you want to begin having those conversations, yes, I acknowledge that you had a rough life. You you were perhaps mistreated. You know, you you experienced depression because of your social class. However, your whiteness has protected you from other, mm, you know, yeah. systemic what would, issues. What would that in have society? been like if you were a different race? We, what if, yes, or, or yeah, a different sexual exactly. orientation or something. So like that. we need to take into account race, gender, sexuality, Im- immigration status. You know, citizenship. You uh, said language too. Language. That's we're privileged. So yeah, important to think so about. So I always come into these spaces. I I am. I'm an immigrant. I am Mexican. I'm of indigenous ancestry, and I some of these privileges I've earned them. Th- and is education English? Like just speaking English is part of. It's a privilege in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A, and mm-hmm. I and I think I want to go back to my point of why I feel like the allyship is so important is because I know Tyler has watched me have this conversation and he goes, oh dear, Katie's coming out. And I, I'm really trying to refine my passion so that mm-hmm. people can, but I also have to acknowledge some people, like you said, are just not ready. Yes. But again, back to the point of like, getting that allyship in some way is so powerful because I guarantee you some of the conversations you've watched me have, if I was a man, they would have been like, what a thought leader. Yes. Yeah. But because I'm a woman, they're like, oh, we have to hear this bullshit again. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> like, so I just, I want to continue. I'm so grateful that we're able to have this conversation. I'm so grateful, Tyler, that you're able to show up out of curiosity and join that allyship because I do believe that it's that partnership and co-collaboration that makes change happen and that's what we're ultimately trying to do is look I'm, through a different lens my hope is to provide the clarity of what it feels like to be ignorant of this stuff yes. right because when yes. somebody first hears this i watched you had a conversation with my dad 
and he was trying really hard to get it and he was just not there right and i'm just like i think most people like you said their their shame and their guilt pops up yes. i know how that feels yes i know how that feels to be like whoa I didn't do this. Like yes. I was just born into this. Exactly. Right? Or my ancestors are, right. you know, it wasn't my fault. Right. And so I think it's important because that's the piece that prevents somebody from listening. Exactly. And so if we can figure out what's going on that's preventing them from listening, then we can help relate to their experience. And if we can relate to their experience, they might be able to relate to whatever it is that we're trying to talk that's about. That's why I always say that shame just gets people stuck. Yes. For shame sure. is a really hard and, emotion and to deal with. And yeah. guilt. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and if I can be candid and I'm nervous <laughs> to Please. even say this giving my intersecting identities but like well white folks have that responsibility to work with other white folks to have these conversations and I appreciate so much being in this space to be able to even have this conversation with the three of you because I can see the domino effect and the impact it's going to have in the community and in your podcast it shouldn't fall on the shoulders of uh, other marginalized identities of other you know, people of color because at the end of the day, they're not going to listen to me, even though I have a PhD. So, this is so important. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm a this doctor. So I have a PhD, and even then people... Well, that's are, what I'm saying. Had, had it been you in that conversation, it's like even they would have less, listened even less. Yes. And that's why I'm saying mm -hmm. like we need mm -hmm. the power of the white male. This is not mm -hmm. about taking it down. Mm -hmm. I think that people feel like we're trying to take down white men and I'm like, we're not, we're trying to create I mean, they're allyship. not going anywhere even if we yeah. really try yeah. to be yeah. totally honest, yeah. unfortunately. I'm like, no, we just want to create allyship because your voice has a greater chance yeah. of being heard. And I feel like I, I, I feel your, your, um, your passion and I can also feel your frustration and I just want to tell you, I don't want you to give up. I want you to Oh, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you don't worry about that one. You're talking to the right <laughs> person. Continue to be consistent and doing this hard work. And when you think, like, this is hard, I can't do it, or I'm tired, other people don't have that privilege. Exactly. Right? So they don't get to do, stop. So you do have a responsibility to continue to unpack and to have these courageous conversations because if they're not listening to you, they're not going to listen to a black or a Latino or a queer folk or, or even a white uh, fat woman and you know, or a woman in a bigger body. Because exactly. Who, who they I are. have curiosity to kind of to like kind of bend that direction a little mm -hmm. bit around, um, you know, something that I've heard you talk about on your um, beautiful social media page is like cultural foods having like weird yes. shame around them and oh, how yeah, like absolutely. that's so not okay. Like yes. because we do talk about intuitive eating here on mm -hmm, this podcast mm -hmm. and different shaped bodies and things like that and like um, that like it's okay to enjoy the things mm -hmm. that like your ancestors feed yes. you and that like those foods are good and nourishing in a different way maybe than they. I mean I don't even want to say than nutritionally yes. like they feed yes. your soul maybe yeah and how does that look for you what are those foods like like experience the tell me a little bit about yes, your experience I there's guess there's so much that I want to unpack about food and race that I haven't done so so much on my platform because of fear because of feeling vulnerable because these conversations are not happening and I need to, needing to take care of my mental health but I do want to say here and I want to really accentuate that um Mexico and the United States have a long history, right? Um, this was Mexico. And if we acknowledge that the Southwest has a very strong, you know, relationship with the United States to talk about, like, even right now you're asking me such a simple question, but I have to go back to history. Like, for me as a sociologist and as someone living in, in, in these borderlands, it's understanding how how people of Mexican descent have been racialized in this country. Like food is intricately connected to identity. Right. 
to to so much stuff. So I really want to center that folks of Latino background, of you know Hispanic or Mexican American background, have experienced different forms of discrimination throughout history. And when I elevate our culture foods, is elevating our identities, is like elevating like our our cultural uh, resiliency. It's like we are surviving in a racist society. Like there's has been so much systematic exclusion since 1848. Mexican Americans were denied their citizenship rights. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo said, "Your citizens." They became foreigners in their own land, and this is gets me so emotional because these there were racist laws like Mexicans were lynched throughout the Southwest in the 1800s so to talk about my culture of foods is like I need to acknowledge like or how our bodies how our brown bodies have been racialized in this country and how people continue to see some of our cultural foods as inferior mm-hmm. maybe it's not discussed that way but how the health industry how mm-hmm. diet culture like how they're healthifying a, a, a burrito to a wrap or something else like yeah Ugh. people don't see it for me it's like so layered and so deep they strip the culture away from it. it. Totally. They, and it's a way, and so that touches on too why assimilation and acculturation, like feeling embarrassed growing up of eating my culture foods. For me, I had to learn English in, in this country. I was bullied for not speaking English. You know, I was undocumented for, you know, part of my childhood. That all shapes my identity as a, as a child, as a girl, as a, a Mexicana. And growing up, you know, in Watsonville and looking at the farm workers who are picking our crops, so it's like you're trying to see, like, who you are in this country, and then you look at your community and the type of work that they're doing, and then you see the rhetoric in this country about immigrants. And then, yes, people love Mexican food, but they're anti-immigrant. I would, right? yeah. So, so I, I, I think I answered your question a little bit complicated. <laughs> yeah. No, but you make us, I mean, I want to like reiterate that. Like in the California, where we, we like, we're, oh, we have the best Mexican food in California. You know how easy for us to say that and then to not be respectful and, and creating better lives comes from. for the people who are in our culture that are of that descent and who have contributed to our society so much. Like you mentioned farm workers. My mm-hmm. gosh, like mm-hmm. our society would completely crumble without those people. You know, and we have so yes. little respect for them. Santa even. Cruz County, Monterey County, we are this Monterey County um, produces 70 percent of the lettuce of the entire, the entire United, United States. States. Oh. So Watsonville, crazy. Watsonville oh you know, it's the strawberry capital, like Castorville, the uh, capital of our artichokes. Like we are in the, we're in a multi, uh, multi-billion dollar industry of agriculture, yet farm workers continue to experience food insecurity, housing insecurity, women experience, uh, uh, immigrant women experience sexual harassment, right? And here we are in, in other spaces, gentrifying uh, communities and the food and elevating. We don't need to, we don't need our culture foods to be elevated right. or to, so that other people. But or I, for it to be shamed yeah, that they're yes. not good for you if you eat them this way. Well, I or, think mm-hmm. that like that is like what you're saying is like there's a perception, whether we're conscious of it or not. I believe most of us are just acting unconsciously, um, which is not an excuse. But I, I I think what you're saying is like there's this perception that the food is less than. Mm -hmm. And like what I think you're asking for and what I think 
your community deserves is to look through the lens of like, look at how resilient this community mm -hmm. is under all the oppression they have faced. Wow. It's like, I feel like that shift alone and yes. looking through the lens of like, look at how incredible this community is mm -hmm. and this culture is for being able to have this level of resiliency under the, like a white person, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. would not, would they would not be able to. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. To go from the white privilege that someone might have today mm -hmm. and then to be put in that environment, mm -hmm. I mean, they would crumble. Yes. They would crumble. And so to, to shift the perception from to resiliency and an amazing community and like there's so many beautiful things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that that are and I feel like it really upsets me mm -hmm. that it's it's viewed anything outside of that and 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 so I'm yeah so yeah. for me you know it is just to uh enforce is not it's not just like elevating like all culture foods or or giving the middle finger to diet culture like yes you can eat your tortillas tortillas doesn't necessarily you know there's it's not the result of diabetes or other things. There's other external factors. It's elevating our culture foods, but for me, it's elevating people's identity. It's like their resiliency, their, you can acculturate into this country. I'm acculturated, but I'm proud of my my foods. And I, I don't wanna, you're already, we're already shamed for the bodies that we have, for our skin color, for what other factors, we're already shamed. And then add it, then people are shaming you shouldn't be eating your culture foods for me it's you know it's very it's a it's a resistance mm -hmm. it's to resist and also people internalize that even beans you know burritos have been you know burritos have beans beans many people don't want to eat beans because like that's food of the I mean, latinos that's food of the poor like even beans are racialized people don't realize that it's crazy yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just such a lack of reverence and respect and curiosity. Something else I wanted to bring up too with you since we have you here, and I'm so grateful for your voice, is like, you know, we are attempting to bring awareness on our podcast and through what we do in our business um, around treating your body with love and care and respect and all those things and like making food choices from that place. And um, one thing I think that I see a lot on the internet is white women walking into spaces that previously belonged to marginalized communities. For instance, like the body acceptance movement, which yes. was started by a black woman. And now yeah. like if you go to that hashtag on Instagram, yeah. it is filled with thin, able-bodied yes. white women. Absolutely. And obviously I believe that everyone deserves yes. to like be able to step into self acceptance yes. and love. Mm -hmm. But like even in the eating disorder careful. community, for mm -hmm. instance, there's like a lot of, it comes from kind of a frame of whiteness. Yes. And so like, how can we, and I know that there might not be like a simple, there is not a simple answer to this, but how can we create space for people who are like, yeah, I see that you're suffering from that, but you're also, again, that marginalization is the privilege I still experience as a white woman who has a thin, abled body. Yes. I still am like, oh, I suffer from diet culture, but it's mm -hmm. not as bad for me yes. as it is for someone else. Thank and how you. can I see that? You mm. know, excellent. And I was just, uh, I've been noticing the same thing, you know, on uh, just how body liberation and body positivity has been co-opted by thin um, mainly cisgender women. And I think where it becomes very problematic, one is not acknowledging the roots of body positivity and where it comes from and that it was rooted on um, black women, trans uh, women, uh, women in bigger bodies, like why that was important. That's one I think people need to acknowledge and give credit uh, because that has been lost. And then secondly, I've heard, and I see that in social media that we already acknowledge that we experience different forms of oppression, right? It's very different for a white woman to say that they've been oppressed by 
diet culture or that they've been oppressed by dieting. You know, that's where I feel like, oh, that's a little stretchy there. You know why? Because that's at the individual level as a person, but systematically as a group, you know, let's take, you know, black women historically and, you know, women of color have, have historically experienced oppression and systematic exclusion. So the way that they experience oppression from diet culture is very different from a, a thin white woman. So I think we got to be careful. Like in the, I don't, I see those conversations happening in social media. White women can't be oppressed by dieting. It's not, that's not how it works. Because and that like, deviates. Can you, can you that highlight take, the difference? Because uh, as, as I We're said, a part of the system to some degree. Yes. Because part of the dominant, you're part of the dominant society as, as white folks. And because anti-blackness and uh, and fat phobia are rooted right that's the emergence of of diet culture in this country it because one, one black woman woman of color have always been used white women have been the standard right right so that's why so fat phobia and anti-blackness is rooted in white supremacy and by the mere fact of just being a white woman you are part of that dominant society so black women were excluded from notions of beauty. Black women were and women of color, indigenous Latina women have mm. been excluded. That's what we mean. Like it's, it's based that, on your. On you're these. saying that traditionally a, a woman of color would not be used as like the image. And it's still not. Yeah. And it's still not in a yeah. lot of these spaces. Uh, ha- so yes. So are you saying that I want to? I want to make yeah, sure I, I really I'm, understand. And I'm not being very articulate. <laughs> no, 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 no. You definitely are. Uh, no, we you just, are. We need to dumb it down yeah. for ourselves. Like, um, <laughs> the standard of measurement is how you say black women have. Or I don't know if I'm saying it though. It's my the Spanish thinking in Spanish and think and trying to talk in English is uh, white femininity, white beauty, beauty is in relation to blackness is in relation to indigenous women is in relation to uh, Latina women. So are you saying that we can't be oppressed by something we created? You can feel a different level of oppression, right? Dif- remember, because we talked about different levels of oppression, yeah. you can be oppressed by a white male. Yes. You can be oppressed by by that system of patriarchy of misogyny. Yes. Right? Yes, absolutely. But not based on on race, not based what well, depending mm. on other intersections. I see. And the diet culture piece, I think, like if you mm-hmm. think when I think about diet culture, and I'm gonna call her out right now, but like I think of Gwyneth Paltrow and like the oh, goop uh-oh. thing. Here like we go. I think yep. about yep. the bone broth thing we just saw mm-hmm. over TikTok. Like I, yeah. that's what I think about. And like she's doing those things from this place of like I need to be thin, but she is the standard. Yes. Like she is the like example on the chalkboard of mm-hmm. we should all look like this. If you're brown, you should look like that. If you're bigger, you should look like that. Like you should be blonde and white and tall and thin and all the things. And like that for white women, like mm-hmm. while we might experience individually, I think mm-hmm. I heard you mention yes, this, I individually experience shame around my body uh-huh. sometimes, which I think all people do, but that like I am not oppressed by the system of it mm-hmm. in the same way because I am considered the standard in this yes, country. Yes, unless you're a, uh, a white woman in a bigger body right. who con- continuously is disenfranchised like, and discriminated in the airport and any in the because uh, of health the size profession. of her body. Absolutely. I see what you're saying. That's really mm-hmm. good distinction. Thank you okay. for that. Yeah. Okay, that's helpful. People, are you saying, let me just refine this even more and see if I can say it. Are you saying that people um, can't feel discriminated by someone who is uh, uh, classified as like, I don't want to use this word, so I'm, forgive me, but I'm s- traditionally like lower on the mm-hmm. hierarchy of things. Is that what you're saying? So somebody is, is looking at an image of a thin white female and she's a thin white female. It's like, 
yeah, what, what's you're what saying you it's a different about? magnitude of yes. oppression that yeah. we have to recognize. Exactly. Yeah, Just right. like I'm saying, like I feel my oppression as a woman next to you as a male, yes. but that oppression is different than you as a woman exactly. and it's having other factors yeah. as well. Yeah. Diet culture Absolutely. affects us differently than it affects exactly. someone. It's the magnitude of the oppression. Yeah, it's the Thank magnitude you. of the oppression. I feel like the way and I described that was horrible, no, by no, the way, but I'm trying my best. I feel like part of what we also have to do and what I wish I would have said in the beginning as well is we need to be okay to make mistakes. Yes. Oh, fact. Because otherwise we're and never going to... apologize gonna, for yeah, them. And then, and, but because we're not going to get anywhere. I think we hide behind fear so much. Like, yes. I don't want to talk about this because am I going to say it the right way? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah and, yeah, and only when we screw up, right? <laughs> we will make that mistake. Absolutely. It's acknowledging that we all experience different forms of marginalization, disenfranchisement, and oppression. And that for racialized groups, that oppression has been systematic. That means that it has been throughout time, throughout history, and that, that it's embedded on in our institutions. Mm. Something you talk about also, I'm just stalking your social media, by the way, but <laughs> something you talk about in your podcast and social media is divesting from diet culture. And like that word, you know, I kind of know what that means. I would love to know more. What, yes. Maybe you could explain that for me in mm -hmm. simple terms. Absolutely. But I would like to do that. Yes. So if I could have some <laughs> guidance, that'd be helpful. Maybe our listeners could benefit as well. I'm still working on that too. So, <laughs> uh, so First, you know, I think dismantling diet culture for me uh, as a sociologist and as a woman of color, like through my lens, is in an utopian world, it would be like eradicate the, the actual system, right? But I know that's impossible because it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So what can we do? For me, then, di uh, dismantling is at the individual level, having these conversations, um, unlearning what we know about bodies, right? Because mm. so even when I think about my life as a as a Mexicana, as a woman who's brown, that there's different shades of brown in my family. The spectrum of colorism is in my family from darker morena, darker skin to lighter to white passing. So when I mean by divesting from diet culture, I mean by looking at the at the individual level, divesting from these, like you said, collective ideas that mm. are oppressive, right? So for me is divesting from notions of beauty, divesting of what it means to be beautiful and accepted, even the notion of professionalism too, that is rooted on white supremacy. So divesting from all these dominant ideas is really challenging them. That's like one big layer. The second one is, you know, I am still working and loving myself. You know, I don't think I'll ever get there because of this society that we live in that constantly reminds me of my place in this, in this hierarchy. Like, how am I gonna love my body when you're telling me I'm not good enough? <laughs> Or you tell yeah. me X, Y, and Z, you know? So those those are factors. So divesting from diet culture is also, also unapologetic. I'm working on that. Being unapologetic about who you are and your, mm. and your multiple intersecting identities. Authenticity you know? is yeah. so important. It's so hard. Yes, you know, yes, it is so hard, especially if you're a, a person of color, if you're queer, you know, like If your authenticity authentic, isn't accepted. It's right. not accepted. It's not like, standard, yeah. How, like, yeah, like it's like a privilege that you get to be the yes. most authentic version of you, right? Because That's scary. Because there's no, no danger. There's no exactly. danger. Right. There's no danger. You know, you can't say that to a black male. You yeah. can't say that to a, a, tra a black trans woman mm -hmm. or, you know, undocumented immigrant. Be your most authentic self. Come out. You know, mm -hmm. you're documented. You're that guy. No, that's so There's like unsensitive. There's physical danger. To There's that. physical danger. People can lose their life for being authentic. So, when you say you know divesting from diet culture, and I say that you know it is try to being an apologetic, being who you are, but 
being aware that we still live within certain constraints in society. Divesting from so diet culture also means um, where we spend our money, you know, like we don't need to buy the avocado toast <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know? or, or the quinoa or that super or whatever green smoothie or whatever it is like that diet culture has healthified. Right. Mm -hmm. So divesting is, you know, moving away from the healthism, divesting from diet culture is what we're doing, you know, having these conversations that are not that necessarily don't happen in other spaces. Divesting from diet culture is also acknowledging where food comes from, acknowledging the land, acknowledging our ancestors, our original stewards of these lands. It's, you know, it's uh, divesting from diet culture is about food justice, is about immigrant rights. So that's, that's just a couple of things. Just a couple, we'll just I mean, make a something list. you said that I feel really well, just you. opened my eyes was this idea around us trying to deliver a message of people coming home to themselves and yeah. being their most authentic expression of who they are. And what, what you're saying is that yes, and we also need to have these conversations because what a privilege it is for me to, to be able be to safe. even give that recommendation, yeah. mm -hmm. right? And yeah. so we have to have the conversations because me coming home to me and being the most authentic expression of me might friction. be very dangerous for somebody else. Absolutely. I know you had said earlier also, you know, when I think about body, and that's what's missing in the body positivity, you know, how it's been co-opted and just love yourself and all these affirmations. I'm like, shit, you know, I wish that that would work for me. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't work when you get a rejection after rejection in academia or whatever. You realize, you know, you, you internalize like I'm not good enough, like or all this and that. And you're asking me that I need to love my body when other people are scrutinizing or talking about my body, you know, even reproductive rights, you know, women of color have historically women were sterilized without their consent, black women, indigenous women, Latina women, you know, and so so even that comes in into body positivity of reproductive rights, like love your body, but wait, my body has been has been violated. There's my my body has experienced violence. People in my ethnic or racial group have experienced violence. How can you tell me just love your body? That's why Rene, Sonia Taylor says radical self-love. She changes that narrative, right? She's shifting that narrative and saying radical self-love. And that radical self-love is centered understanding systems of oppression. It is centered on liberation. And so that body liberation is grounded on social and racial justice hmm. you know it's something popped into my head as you said that i know we're short on time here um but you know it seems to me that we all go through this experience in the world and a lot of people everybody has things that happen to them um and the more of these things that you diverge from the ideal or the standard the more these things happen to you. And so there's more to overcome, right? So a woman who is of color, who was overweight, who grew up in a poor community, who maybe has a, a different sexuality or whatnot, the amount of things that that person has been told to not love themselves for is so much greater wow. yes. than someone like myself yes. who shows up in this world and people are like, you can do what you want, right? And yes. I think that's such an important thing for people to be aware of is that one person might have a million reasons to not love themselves yes. and another maybe only a thousand yes. and that means that's going to be a lot harder and if we if we want that to be fair mm -hmm. we have to change 
the entire way we look at society. By empowering people to come home to themselves, but by having these conversations of like, we understand that we're coming from this lens, Mm -hmm. and this lens is a very privileged lens. Mm -hmm. And so we need to acknowledge that this privilege doesn't exist for everyone, Mm -hmm. and and have meaningful conversations like this to bring awareness to to the full true story. Mm -hmm. I think think what is really coming out now, which um, is, is hard but also necessary is truth. Mm-hmm. Truth is starting to come out. It's always been there, but we've been yeah. like, don't look at it, don't talk about yes. it. Well, this is. I would love to have you back on oh, for please. a second one because I have this <laughs> or one a third question. Or a fourth. I, I, yeah. I have a second question that's not going to get answered, asked today, but it's just when you started out, you said education, and I couldn't help but think we are so afraid to tell the truth of history. Oh yeah. Oh. And well, you know that ethnic studies is still banned in some states. It's lies. <laughs> right. What you learn in the textbooks in school. Right. It's yes. and that's just that's that's really sad that's mm-hmm. really sad that we can't tell the truth of history because i know that when i try to tell at least my best version of the mm-hmm. truth to my children mm-hmm. um they see oppression for what it is mm-hmm. immediately mm-hmm. kids don't see it the way that um adults do because they're in that phase of being conditioned mm-hmm. and if we can teach them hey this is what really happened and then they can just relate to that from a human experience because that's where they're starting from mm-hmm it's so much easier than having to unwind it when exactly, someone's older. Exactly. So. And that's where the real change comes, right? It's because when we can change on the individual level, like you're saying, if you have children, that impacts them and it impacts their ability to operate in a world in a different place. Mm-hmm. And that is the future. Exactly. I mean, that really is. So the intersection of work on yourself combined with education, I mean, there's so much to be Touches talked about. all of the systems. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So I just want to offer you so much like respect and reverence <laughs> and um, appreciation for like coming coming to to meet with us today and being willing to be vulnerable and um, having these conversations because I believe they are super important and I just again have so much respect for you. So thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I appreciate it. I, I really do. Thank I you. So glad yeah, you were I'm here. I'm grateful that you're here and. Um, just it, like it really breaks my heart to hear the experiences you had. Yes, because and this is just touching the surface. I know, yeah. I know. We, I know. we need like we years. need a little bit. We yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, I can't do a lot of Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> but we will absolutely put um, uh, all of your information in our show notes so people can find out where to find you. And we really hope to have you back. Absolutely. And thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you for inviting you. me. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed today's show. Now, before you go, it would mean a lot to us if you could take a moment right now to subscribe to the podcast and then leave us a review. This helps spread the word so more people can feel lighter by shedding one belief at a time. Also, we want to hear from you. So if this episode impacted you or you have any questions that you think would be great for us or any of our future guests, please feel free to email us at podcast at weshape.com. And finally, if you want to try WeShape's different approach to health and fitness, remember that right now you can sign up for WeShape's Feel Good Challenge and get access to everything WeShape has to offer for free. Just click the link in our podcast description or go to weshape.com slash challenge to sign up.